Welcome to Vision Drip, a podcast designed to give you a steady drip of our vision, mission, and DNA to establish and refine the gospel culture at Sacred City Church. I'm your host, Pastor Sam Schmidt, church planter and pastor of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. I am so excited to have you with me as I hope this podcast helps to equip you as a disciple of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life as we set out to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Not only do I hope that this podcast helps you grow, but it would grow your affections for Jesus. So let's dive into this episode of Sacred City Vision Drill. It's a sad realization to know that the, the the days of summer are dwindling away. I mean, for most of us, functionally, summer is over. Kids are back in school, um, but you know, there, there's still maybe a few days left, something like that, uh, officially, technically, of summer, and, and and that can be kind of sad to see the summer days go. Love being outside, love the warm weather, love the extra family time that usually comes along uh, with summer. But I personally uh, love the fall. I love looking forward to the fall. Um, for a few reasons. Uh, one, the cooler weather. I like it. Uh, I'm a warm-bodied individual, constantly sweating, it seems, and so the cooler weather, love it. Love love waking up to a, a brisk uh, morning. Uh, two, with that comes football season, and you know I'm here for football season, baby. Uh, the uh, the Las Vegas Raiders are poised to have a great season, so I'm, I'm excited about that, college football too. Um, and third, I just like fall because it brings about a new consistency. Um, it, it goes back to some of the structure and the, the daily rhythms of, of families being around, especially on Sunday mornings, um, seeing everybody on Sunday mornings. I love that. Um, but just the consistency day to day, the kids have a little bit more structure with going to school and all of those things that just give life a little more structure. And I think uh, with structure, I'm a guy that appreciates a bit of structure. I don't like to be overstructured, uh, but, but I do appreciate some of it. And um, as we come to the fall, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the fall, I'm also kind of recapping in my mind uh, the summer, and uh, a lot of things really, a lot of really important things happened this summer. Uh, if you pay attention to the news, there were a handful of Supreme Court rulings um, that were significant that I hope to address because it, it they stand at the intersection of culture and faith. Um, and I, I wanted to take some time to talk about it, uh, but since I was sort of on a, a content hiatus, uh, I was out of the pulpit for those six weeks, and uh, I had had ground to a halt here with uh, the podcast, taking a break uh, from content. I, I just didn't have the time, the space, uh, or really the the drive to um, address these topics. But here we are, coming up on uh, the fall, and, and I'm, I'm thinking back through some of those things and say, hey, why not now? Why not come back? Um, and revisit some of, of those things. Uh, and it'll make sense here towards the end why um, I'm wanting to address this. Uh, but at the top of the list of, of things that I wanted to address over the summer uh, was the overruling of Roe v. Wade that happened on June 24th of this year. Um, man, I remember this day crystal clear. I was at home uh, at my parents' house back in Trainer, Iowa. Uh, we were home for a uh, family, family wedding, uh, and I was outside playing with the kids, and uh, I opened up my phone and saw this news notification that Roe v. Wade had been overruled. And, and there had been suspicion that that was going to be the case as there were some uh, leaked documents, which had never happened before in the, in, the, um, in the history of the Supreme Court, where a ruling 
um, got leaked like that. Um, and, and I think it was done to sort of incite uh, distrust and, and to incite some sort of um, theory from the left, but it happened. Um, and, and thankfully that, that didn't deter the justices from issuing um, this ruling. And I, I remember opening it and just like screaming with joy to see um, Roe v. Wade, a, a piece of legislation that has cost millions of lives, uh, of, of unborn life, um, just snatched away fr- from that child in the womb. Um, and here I was seeing that this whole thing had been overruled and I was, I was excited. And so I, I ran inside, I told my family and, and my family, uh, are all Christians, praise the Lord for that. Um, and so they, they shared my excitement for this and, and still it didn't feel like enough. I feel like there had to be some sort of parade. There needed to be some like fireworks being launched off in the streets. I mean, something had to happen for this, uh, monumentous decision that, that just got handed down from the Supreme court. And I, and I was talking to some of my friends about this and, uh, you know, like, you know, your response, what was your response when you re- uh, heard of this ruling? Um, and they were like, dude, this was nuts. Um, they, they were down at um, the Association for Classical Christian Schools. They've got a conference every year, and, and there's a, a good number of people there, a couple thousand, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, two to four thousand, something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a large group, and it's all um, Bible worldview people. Um, they, they love the Word of God. They love uh, this kind of education. Um, and right in the middle of the conference, a guy named George Grant, who I'll introduce you to here in a minute, um, who spent most of his life, he, he actually comes out, he tells a story um, and says, you know, I was, when I was, it was in the 70s when, when Roe v. Wade got handed down, I was on um, the, the steps of the Capitol protesting uh, the Supreme Court ruling. Um, and then he, he had basically made his, uh, pro-life uh, like his, part of his life agenda. Like he just, he just made it part of his cause. Um, and he's been arguing for uh, pro-life against pro-choice um, for decades now. And so he gets out and tells a story about how he's there, um, and then he goes, it's, it's my pleasure to announce to you all, if you have not yet heard, uh, Roe v. Wade has been overturned by the Supreme Court. And this, the whole crowd, they tell me, whole crowd just erupts uh, in thanksgiving and praise and celebration, uh, breaks out into a song of great is thy faithfulness. I just, like, I, that's what I wanted to be part of when I, I heard uh, of the ruling, just this overwhelming um, celebration. And I think that is something that we ought to celebrate as Christians. We need to be uh, we should not be apologetic about our joy uh, for the overruling of Roe v. Wade. And, and that I'm, I'm saying this not as a matter of opinion, um, but as a matter of, of theology, of biblical theology, and saying um, the reason why Christians are consistently pro-life is because the scriptures speak to the dignity, value, and worth of all human life, uh, that human life begins at conception, that it's God who knits us together in our mother's wombs. Um, and, and so we, we look at this reality of, of life created in the image of God, something uh, with inherent dignity, value, and worth that we ought to protect. Um, now, the that that's the Christian stance, and and that's shared um, across across even Protestants uh, to Catholics. Something that that we both hold together, and we say we agree uh, of the the sanctity of life, especially the life of the unborn, um, and, and and that life that is in the most vulnerable categories of humanity. And so we we ought to celebrate that and, and be excited about that. Um, and, and so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, why we should rejoice in this, why, um, you know, why we should rejoice in this, why there's still work to do, um, and a little bit of history on on Roe v. Wade and sort of the, the development of of this mentality of the, the pro-choice agenda uh, and what's going on behind that. So let me back up and start with 
um, what Roe v. Wade was all about. And and for most of us, we understand that it has to do with abortion rights, the ability for um, uh, a, a mother to choose on her own whether or not to keep a child that has been conceived um, and the governor, government being unable to infringe upon her rights to make um, that kind of choice. And so this whole thing got started. All, all Roe v. Wade um, was put into law January 22nd of 1973. Um, this all came about by a woman by the name of um, Norma McCorvey. Um, she was a Texas resident pregnant with her third child, um, and she didn't want her child then. Um, and at that time, it was illegal in Texas to abort a baby, and so she decided to sue the state, which then graduated up to uh, the Supreme Court. And then that's where um, the Supreme Court, which was left-leaning in that time and in, in their interpretation of the Constitution, um, uh, allowed abortion to be recognized as a constitutional right. Now, the interesting thing about this is uh, in order to, to do this, in order to, to create a piece of legislation like this, you have to be able to argue from the Constitution. Um, and, and for this spe- specific uh, case, there was not precedent, and this is why you hear a lot of conservatives and even, even the conservative justices that just overruled Roe v. Wade claim that there was no precedent for uh, the, the original ruling on Roe v. Wade. Um, there was nothing that led up before that would allow, but what they did is they argued uh, for the woman's right to choose, um, and, and by that, that, that's the language that the left wants to use, um, the right to choose, rather than say the right to abort a baby or the right to kill a baby, the right to terminate a pregnancy or the right to snatch life from the womb, right? We're, we're trying to sugarcoat what's actually happening here um, in the transaction of abortion. But they they argued from the 14th Amendment, which asserts uh, that the rights of the f- citizens are not to be infringed upon by the federal government. And it says it like this, the state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or or property without due process of of the law. And so that's where they were arguing from, that uh, to to restrict abortion is to deprive a person of liberty, of the right to choose. Now, the irony of this is that um, abortion does not just affect one person, but two, and and if not more. Um, For sure, two, in the sense that that the mother um, is making a choice of what she's going to do with her life, but also uh, her choice to terminate will automatically stunt the life of this child, not just stunt it, but cease it. Um, and so th- the irony of this whole thing in in saying that she has the right to liberty, that the government cannot deprive her of her right to liberty, well, in that action, she is depriving that child of life. Um, and so this is why it's it's a um, it's a self-eating uh, ideology. It's it's contradictory in its nature. And of course, we have laws on the books about you shall not murder, which isn't as a, a law from the the Ten Commandments. Um, it's God's law. It's a good law. It's a right law. It's a law that's not meant to be violated. And when there is a violation of it, there's typically consequences. Um, for that. And so here they were arguing from the 14th Amendment. It, it seemed like, a, a, I think, and, and most Christians agree with me, even conservatives, and obviously the Supreme Court um, justices, current justices agree um, that this was not a, a good ruling because of, of the contradictory nature of this. And so what happened, though, um, with, with this legislation in 1973, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that it, the federal law is that abortion is a constitutional right and it cannot be denied um, in any state. And so the federal government then is overriding the state government's uh, legislation, which typically is problematic, and that's actually part of the whole Constitution, trying to limit the power of the federal government and put the power back in the hands of of the people. Um, and with that... Um, 
it, it started this this um, this landslide of. Uh, I would say secular morality, it, it just a complete uh, a deviation from uh, the Christian morality that our, our country has had and has operated by uh, for, for the majority of our existence. Now, I, I say that, and I know that there's always pushback, and you know, I'm happy to, t- to talk about this, and maybe someday I'll, I'll do a podcast on that specifically. Um, but but it's undeniable that even if our founding fathers were not, uh, you know, to say, well, what about? Um, uh, Hamilton and Jefferson and these guys that were more theists, open theists, and not necessarily Christians, they were still operating on biblical values and principles um, that allowed us to, to create this sort of constitution um, and, and the general law of the land that's very much governed by um, the Word of God. And so anyway, we have this big deviation here in 1973 that allowed for the, the moral uh, downslide of, of America but that didn't just happen overnight. See, this this whole thing had been brewing for decades upon decades. That that you can actually say when you read up on on abortion history, um, there are many left leaning sources, um, meaning pro or pro choice sources, that will argue that abortion has been a normative thing in our, our society. It was it was not until recent time, um, in, in the early 1900s that. Um, that we started, there started to be a shift in in the the views of morality and the legitimacy of of abortion being a an ethical decision, um, and so they'll say things like, up until 1840, abortion was widespread and largely stigma free. Now, I I have a very hard time believing that, and that's something that you need to be cautious about when you're reading history. Um, who is it? Who's the historian that's providing the facts? Because the people who write the history books are able to modify and edit history uh, in a way that suits what they want to be uh, espoused. And so uh, a lot of times abortion history stuff is going to come from left-leaning folks, um, and they're going to present it as this thing that was normal, which I, I don't think it was, because at that point in 1840 and before, it was closer to the the origins of of our Christian society that, that uh, our founders had really been pushing for. And I don't mean like everybody was a Christian when I say Christian society, but a society that is founded upon uh, the, the principles of a biblical uh, mandate. Um, and so, but because, just because it was a Christian society doesn't mean uh, that abortions weren't happening, that there was, in fact, abortions happening. And, and a lot of times they were dangerous because they were not allowed. Um, they were done in these, these sort of back alley clinics that were not necessarily known for their, their cleanliness and uh, medical precision. Um, and so it would end up costing women their own life as they go to abort a baby. Uh, many women, would they themselves die because of this decision that they made. Um, and so leading up to Roe v. Wade, there was this long history uh, of this, what I would call deviation of biblical morals, a biblical view of, of the value of life. Um, and and part of that, part of the surge of this that, that launched us into the 70s and Roe v. Wade was the rise of feminism. Um, and, and one of the women that was largely responsible uh, for this movement, for second, third wave feminism, um, where things move from um, or, or maybe in the first wave of feminism, there were some helpful things to glean from, especially in seeing like women as equals, created equally with equal dignity, value, and worth in the image of God. I, I think there's some value in that. But then things started sort of uh, devolving from there, and it, and it morphed into a desire for autonomy, total autonomy, um, even bodily autonomy beyond biology. And so you start to get um, 
things like birth control introduced, um, and you get uh, abortions, like this normalization of, of abortions. And one of the women who is driving this movement was a woman by the name of, of Margaret Sanger, who is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, what's interesting about Margaret Sanger is, is that if you were to ask our, our culture, our society about her and, and her reputation, or even pick up a, you go to Barnes and Noble and pick up a, uh, a biography on her, what you're going to hear is, is like a lot of just like raving and praising um, this brave and courageous woman who did such a great work uh, to help women advance and do all of this great stuff. Um, and what they'll do, again, a revisionist history, they'll gloss over some of her, her more, um, I would say like demonic facets of her life uh, that that actually motivated her um, to to create Planned Parenthood and, and and drive the the pro-choice agenda. Now let me just pinpoint a couple of things first. Um, she was known for being a huge supporter of eugenics. Um, this came out in a couple different facets. First, there was the 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 disability, uh, like eugenics as, as a means to cure our the human race of disability. So she was saying that if, if you know that there's a hereditary uh, a disability within this child. Um, both the child, the family, and the society are better off if this child does not exist. And so she argues, you know, well, a woman should be able to choose. In fact, we'd be better off eliminating that population, whether it's like um, Down syndrome or or um, you've got some sort of uh, physical disability, uh, a, an arm that doesn't grow correctly or something like that, where Margaret Sanger said, hey, we better just, you know, it's better to just get rid of that person and it's better for society that we don't have to look after that kind of person. And so she had this really compassionless, heartless posture towards those who are disabled. Um, and then that extended her desire for eugenics descent, uh, extended beyond that, um, into the racial factors. And, and part of this is she was connected to someone who is high up, um, in the Nazi regime that was advocating for eugenics. Um, and so she adopted uh, a lot of this as she spent time, um, over, uh, in, in Europe and, and in Germany. Germany, um, she adopted some of these ideologies, and one of the reasons why Planned Parenthoods are have such great representation in urban and minority neighborhoods is because she was specifically targeting minorities. She had this this mentality that we don't want the whether it be the African Americans or the Latino people to to overtake uh, the white population. She says one of the ways uh, that we can mitigate that problem is by um, offering abortive services that are specifically targeted toward them. And so she very much was racially motivated in the in, in strategize um, in the places where they were to put these Planned Parenthood clinics to offer abortion services to those minority communities. And then on top of that, um, she was especially uh, sexually perverted. She, she, uh, people would look at her and praise her for her sexual liberation, but she really had this deviant uh, sexuality that that she had a lot of different partners. Um, open, her second marriage was an open marriage. Uh, her husband loved her so dearly and didn't want to lose her, but he, she very clearly had no regard for him, and and she was uh, part of our. Planned Parenthood was to deal with some of the the consequences that come from um, this this um, promiscuous lifestyle of of STDs 
um, and, and other other diseases that come from that. And so she wanted to create um, contraceptive uh, mechanisms that would prevent that and allow people to have this bodily autonomy to sleep with whoever they want and, and kind of just just live this frivolous, um, sexually divergent lifestyle. She was very much about those things. And so the, most of our, our, our current secular bi- um, biographies of Margaret Sanger will overlook these things and praise her for, for her fight for women's rights. But really, she has this dark and, 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 and wickedly, I would even say demonically motivated um, reasoning behind why she wanted to create planned parenthood. And, and I actually learned all this from a book that was written by George Grant, who's the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, um, by the name of uh, Killer Angel. Very, very interesting book, helpful to understand, to get in her mind and see some of, of the really the wickedness um, that is going on behind Planned Parenthood. And we've seen some of this in recent years um, with the discussion of, of these clinics selling um, uh, fetal tissue um, for research and, and all of these things where they're, they're, it's a money machine. And that's what it's been about since day one. It's been a mechanism to make and generate money, um, preying upon people who are in crisis. And it's just, it's wicked. And, and so, um, Planned Parenthood, um, is, is her, her, um, her, her, her child, um, her, her brainchild. Um, and, and there's a lot of what drove, uh, Roe v. Wade from, from getting to put into place and to, to normalizing, um, the, the access to abortion and making it something that, that the, the federal government says all states can, no state can prevent an abortion from happening. Now you see a sort of a loophole in that where, um, states had previously created, um, certain, uh, bills that would prevent, you know, a heartbeat bill or after uh, a 20 week bill or something along those lines that would prevent prevent uh, that would only allow early term abortions which is still uh, it's good to protect those later term pregnancies but still left a lot of vulnerable children that that would later on or that would be um, terminated and so um, Planned Parenthood's this 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 machine um, hell-bent on destroying and, and human life and and destroying the image of God um, and it was interesting as Planned Parenthood and, and Roe v. Wade uh, uh, progressed. Um, later on, this woman Norma McCorvey, who is who is who went by Roe for you know sake of anonymity, um, Jane Roe instead of Jane Doe. Um, she later on in life got converted. She came to G- came to faith, um, and and became a pro life advocate, um, stating that her involvement with Roe v. Wade was the biggest mistake of her life. She deeply regretted her involvement um, in creating this uh, legislation, and, and and later on in her life would work to uh, fight for life. Um, and as as this seemingly secular movement or, or this godless movement of pro choice um, kind of became more widespread in our society, um, it, it's easy for us to look at it and say, "Well, um, there it goes. Our, our our culture is unraveling." And in some ways, you can use um, our, our viewpoints, society's view on abortion, as a barometer for our our moral and and and. Um, ethical standards here, because because if you're able to kill your own child, to kill your own offspring um, in the womb, that says a lot to uh, the, the that, that's a fountainhead for other deviant morality issues um, and ethical problems that will come um, later on. And so um, as the church saw this darkness sort of, of pressing in across the world, what could have happened is sort of this retreatism and says, all right, we lost this one, um, but let's, let's not maybe, you know, we'll, we'll fight to not lose something else. But what you really see in the church is you see the surge of work being done um, by uh, by Christians. Um, 
where we see that while Planned Parenthood and other abortive clinics um, are, are about 800 in, in total throughout our country, um, we see about 2,500, um, over 2,500 uh, crisis pregnancy centers um, throughout our country. Most often, these crisis pregnancy centers are religiously affiliated um, or supported in large part by churches and households of faith. So your everyday Christians are putting their money where their mouth is, they're valuing life, they're trying to help people, and they do, these crisis pregnancy centers do comprehensive care and counseling. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, there's a smear attack going on on these pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy centers, and say, well, they don't do enough. They 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 hide information. They don't present all of the options for these, these expecting mothers who come in looking for their services. Well, of course they don't, because their whole purpose in existing is to help point uh, a mother away from the choice of abortion and whether it's uh, adoption or equipping her and her partner for parenthood um, and supporting and, and being there throughout the whole process, that's what they want to do because there's this value on on life. And so they they have this comprehensive view of, of pre to postnatal care and everything in between, whether it's helping um, with diapers and clothing and parenting classes, uh, mental health counseling, um, creating some sort of social structures and classes, things to help parents actually step into this major life change uh, that they find themselves in. And, and so these, these crisis pregnancy centers are doing great work um, and they're doing, they're, they're standing in the gap and meeting a need where the government typically funds and mostly funds um, agencies like Planned Parenthood that will, that will um, promote abortion where this is mostly done on, on the dime of individuals and in the private sector, not m- mostly not government funded because when you take government money, there's always stipulations that come with it. This is the church stepping up. And so to see the church, um, ha- you know, like almost, what is it, triple um, over triple um, the amount of abortion clinics and step into that. The church is doing a lot already. And that's one of the things um, that I hear from other Christians all the time. Well, the church needs to do more. The church needs to do more. And usually uh, when they say that, that that's that person exposing that they need to do more, that they're not actually doing anything, that they're not, they're not bought into this at all. Uh, and so they themselves actually need to do more. But really the church in general is doing quite a bit. There are a lot of things going on. Not only do we have these crisis pregnancy centers that are are helping to care for the unborn. Um, you have nonprofits like Safe Families, which office here at Sacred City, um, that are doing good work to help provide support. So, so for a parent who who decides to keep the baby, and maybe they have to go into rehab, or they, there's a, a jail stint, or there's something that's going on um, that that may have uh, swayed them to abort the baby initially. Well, here they're providing support, and you've got Christian families taking in children, providing what what is sort of like a, an alternative to foster foster care, um, and caring for real practical needs. Not to mention that most foster care families are Christian families. And so the church is doing a lot. I, I hate that. I hate that critique. Now, can the church do more? Sure. Yes, we can. But the church, it's not like the church isn't doing anything. And you can even see this going on into the local context um, where where churches are, maybe they have their own ministries, or we've even had in missional communities, um, sort of adopting a, a mom who, who gets pregnant in, in sort of a crisis situation and, and sort of takes her in and helps her out and, and gets her up on her feet and, you know, church being the church, being the hands and feet of Christ. And so the church um, is doing a lot. Now, 
just because Roe v. Wade has been overruled, which again we should celebrate, um, it, it points to the fact that that there is um, the acknowledgement that Roe v. Wade was a mistake, that that it was an inconsistent ruling um, within the nature of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and so we should celebrate that. But what that means, it doesn't mean that abortion is now illegal. Um, it means that the decision for abortion gets pushed to the states. So now the voice of the people actually can be heard. So now within your state, you can vote on these laws uh, that will, or your vote by putting people into office who will make the laws um, that will either be pro-choice or pro-life. And so as we have more Christians and and, and Lord willing, as, as more people come to faith and see the, the dignity, value, uh, and inherent uh, worth of, of human life, even in the womb, um, we, we have more and more people uh, contributing to the pro-life agenda and having legislation uh, that reflects it. Now, you see that in states like Texas, you see that in states like Idaho and Arkansas and even Iowa. Uh, now, but the other states that are more liberal, that are, are um, blue states like Illinois, California, New York, New Jersey, it seems uh, less probable that we'll see any kind of legislation that will prevent abortion from happening. But that doesn't mean the church stops the fight. In fact, what Roe v. Wade, this overruling of Roe v. Wade, means that the church really can get to work now and in, in, in arguing for and in, in pushing for legislation and bringing awareness to the topic of, of abortion uh, and showing it for what it is, this really wicked and, and godless um, act that it defiles the image of God. Um, so as we can go about that and, and support our case and argue for our case, the hope is that we we win more and more people over to a biblical worldview to our side in this particular this particular issue, uh, and see states flip from from blue to red in this specific issue, um, and and have have uh, legislation that honors uh, the Imago Day. So in a lot of ways, the work for the church really really begins. And, and so with that, I want to invite you um, to walk with me and my family. This weekend, um, there is a Walk for Life on Saturday, September 10th, um, which is why I'm putting this podcast out now. This this walk is coming up. Um, Pregnancy Resources is, is hosting this. It starts at Ben Butterworth Park. It's a, I think it's like a two-mile walk. And so um, you can come with the family. If, if you can't make it for the walk, hey, what? What if you threw a couple bucks? Um, my family's raising money to do this. Um, and so if you want to support us, it goes straight to Pregnancy Resources. Um, you can find a link online on our Facebook page, my wife's Facebook page, um, and contribute to the cause because this is something that we ought to, ought to both shine the light on by, by being uh, visible out in the community saying, hey, this is what we're for. Um, we as Christians stand for life, um, the human, he, the dignity, value, and worth of human, uh, whether in the in the womb or outside of the womb, it is it is legitimate. Um, and, and then also putting our money where our mouth is. And maybe that means um, your missional community needs to get involved um, with, with something like pregnancy resources. If, if your mission has sort of stalled out um, or, or maybe safe families and getting involved in some of these causes that are, are being pro-life from womb to tomb, um, that, are, that are engaging with the, the, the prenatal um, elements of it, but also like the later in life stages where, where maybe um, fostering children and, and things of that nature and to have this comprehensive view of being pro-life. Now, I know that there are a lot of um, pushbacks on on this, I know one of the things that, that that's common argument they hear: well, the church if she's going to be pro-life. She needs to be pro-life from womb to tomb, and, and I agree with that. That is a that's a valid critique that we need to be more engaged, um, whether it's through um, safe families or just being good neighbors and caring for kids um, who who maybe are in more volatile situations. Adoption is something that Christians ought to think about um, and pray about, and so we we should have that bent in us. And I know that we have many people in our church, whether they're working um, in 
in sort of the social services realm and they really have a heart for that or people who are, are going through the process of fostering or, or even looking towards adoption. So that, that stuff is represented here and we want to keep doing that and, and keep moving forward uh, and being more comprehensively pro-life. Now, another thing that I hear, which is interesting because it mostly comes from, from Christians or people who call themselves Christians and who are maybe um, on sort of like a deconstruction phase or who have been swayed um, by some of these more liberal, secular ideologies um, that, that where compassion has been weaponized, where they'll make an argument that abortion is actually a compassionate thing, which baffles me because l- literally um, what's happening is abortion in abortion is the opposite of compassion. Um, you're, you're putting... You're eliminating a life rather than elevating and enhancing a life um, and lending a helping hand. Um, and so s- some of the things I've heard as I celebrated, I, I had a-, a number of people sort of um, chirping at me um, that-, that were saying that, um, you know, it was, it was narrow-minded of me to be pro-life um, and to celebrate this because um, in celebrating this, it's going to remove the opportunity for so many minority and vulnerable people, women, uh, single moms, um, whose life is going to get so much harder and so much uh, more challenging. Their, their career is going to be put on the line when they have a kid. Um, you know, we're, uh, it's being uh, uncompassionate towards them. Um, but, but listen, the, the thing about that is, is um, you cannot weaponize compassion. Um, it is, it is two wrongs don't make a right, whether, you know, the, the reason for getting pregnant was, was done, you know, out of wedlock or whatever the reason was, whatever this, the reason why this pregnancy was unwanted, whether it's a matter of convenience of, I don't want my career to get interrupted, which was uh, a big piece of the, the feminist movement that, that got on. It was like, Hey, we want to advance in the workplace, but in order to advance in the workplace, we have to get our, con- our reproductive, uh, system under control and sort of reject the, the, uh, biological limitations that God has naturally put upon us, um, and so you get some of that going on, um, or if it's uh, like out of wedlock or, or whatever the, the other scenarios might be. Um, but terminating a baby is not a compassionate decision. It, it cannot be a compassionate decision by definition. And so, listen, I, I know that it's often that and we can spend more time talking about some of these things and, and perhaps we'll kind of get into some of these arguments. And there's a lot of work being done. Um, I can't think of the guy's name right now. Um, ben Durbin, is that his name? Um, he, he's a guy that's, he's, he's done a lot of pro-life, um, stuff and, and, and work through some of apologetically, some of the arguments that we're, we're likely to hear now, just because the culture is loud and just because people are, are lobbying these insults or, or critiques towards the church doesn't mean that we stand down. We continue to fight for what is true, what is right, what is beautiful. And life is beautiful. Life is created, human life created in the image of God. And so it is right for Christians to fight for life. It is not a, a single issue thing that Christians are, are only about, but it is a big thing. It is, is, it is one of the, at the top of the list, because again, it, it's a, a, a barometer for the moral, um, the, the moral climate, the, the ethical standards of our society that reveals, um, where we're headed. And so we ought to fight for the soul of our country. Uh, we need to fight for a more, uh, righteous, a more just, uh, society in this. And, and, eliminating and fighting for eliminating abortion and fighting for human life is one of the ways that we do this. In fact, this is part of, 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 of a piece of when we talk about renewing the city is, is renewing our city in a way that is more just.
just and equitable, and you extend that to your state, um, a, a city that is more just and upright um, and righteous. That's what we want. And and there's in a, a righteous society, there's no place uh, for an abortion clinic. There's no place for a mother to terminate. Now, there's a lot of alternatives to that of what you can do. Um, and we want to provide. The church wants to stand in the gap and, and provide help with those things. And so here's here's what I'm thinking. The church stands uh, in a really unique place to be both um, to be ha- to have this prophetic edge and to be very compassionate and very helpful. Um, prophetic edge in the sense that we love the truth, we stand on the truth, we stand on the word of God. We're unwavering uh, in our commitment to it, so we love the truth. But at the same time, we have an open posture towards people who are hurting and are in need of help, and so we want to provide that help. We want to be people who stand in the gap and, and have open arms towards these people who maybe either one they're going through a crisis and this pregnancy is unwanted and they've got to figure out what to do with their life. And so we either point them towards the direction of, of, of adoption or equipping them to be a, a parent themselves. Um, so that that's part of it. Uh, um, and the other thing is to stand in the gap and, and with arms wide open um, towards people who have already had abortions. Um, and that's one of the things crisis pregnancy centers often do is, is do counseling for people who have had abortions. Um, because one of the things that comes along with abortions that they don't tell you at Planned Parenthood is some of the emotional, uh, the, the physical, the spiritual uh, consequences that come along with it, the, the guilt, the shame, the regret. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that, that sh- complicate life after you have abortion. So a lot of people go to abortion to think that this is the uh, a decision that's going to solve a lot of my problems. And really what it does is it, it introduces a lot more complex problems that you now have to live with the, for the rest of your life. And it's it's a lot of times this inner turmoil um, of what's going on that will affect every aspect of your life. And, and I've seen, and I know, I personally know people um, who in their, in their early stages stages of life, they weren't necessarily Christians or, or had or were weak in their faith, um, got pregnant out of wedlock. Um, they they were sort of scrambling what we're doing. I'm too young to have a child. I'm not responsible enough to have a child. Uh, I don't want to go through this pregnancy. It'll ruin my career. It'll ruin my reputation. Um, and so they opted for abortion. And, and with that, they have the, the, the guilt, the emotional stuff, uh, the, the um, spiritual consequences. They felt that. Um, and, and what that has done is uh, you can either double down on that um, and, and become calloused. Um, like you've seen a lot of people in our culture that just celebrate the fact that they have had abortions and they have no regrets over this thing. Um, or uh, the spirit cuts to the heart, um, brings conviction, and Jesus stands there ready to meet that person right where they're at and, and give them the grace and the forgiveness that, that his blood covers their shame and their guilt. He removes their sin from, from them. He credits them with a new righteousness. And so the church really has the advantage of both having um, the prophetic edge, but also this compassionate heart of loving the people um, who are broken over this. And, and even for people who have who have for a long time been pro-choice advocates and, and like argued for this is the way that has to be. Um, and they've had a change of heart. They've come to see things from a biblical perspective and they feel a lot of guilt just even holding that viewpoint. Um, the grace of Jesus stands there to forgive them and to move them. Now, part of repentance, um, kind of like what you see with uh, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. Jesus saw him sitting up in the tree and Zacchaeus had been taking advantage of people for a long time. And Jesus, he, uh, he, he basically, he confesses, he repents of his sin. And, and, and he says, um, Jesus says, hey, this is what it looks like to, to live out repentance, not just to stop doing it, not just to stop uh, taking advantage of people, but actually um, seeking reconciliation, restitution, and paying back. And so one of the ways that we, we sort of uh, work in the other direction and we pay back, or, or the thief, uh, another example of, of the Apostle Paul um, is, is when he says, let the thief know 
no longer steal, but instead uh, to to get to work hard and and, and to work hard and uh, earn an eager or earn an honest living, and then to give generously to meet that that to meet, give generously to meet the needs of those around him. That's the full cycle of of. Um, uh, repentance, and so the same thing goes for for people who were at one time pro-choice, um, had a change of heart. They saw um, the wickedness of that, have come to see things from a biblical worldview, um, and have repented of it. And now, what what it means is you don't just stay silent on the matter; is that you actually work for pro-life. And so again, the invitation stands uh, for anybody, everybody, to come down, walk with us in this walk for life um, this Saturday, September tenth. Um, I don't know exactly the time. I would imagine sometime in the morning, whether it's like nine o'clock, something like that. Um, hit me up for details or, or look on Facebook, or if you want to give to it, uh, I want to invite you to this. This is again, something that I care about. This is something that, that it's not a single issue thing in the church, but it is an important matter that we need to think about. And, and, and the scriptures are very clear on this matter. You have to do a ton uh, of mental gymnastics, theological aerobatics, um, to, to get by this and to argue for abortion from, it's just, it's, it's, it's lunacy to be able to, to think that you can argue for abortion from a biblical worldview um, or, or from the Bible. It's just it's just um, illogical. And so I want to call us into this, and this is part of the reasons why um, at the beginning of the year that I invited us as a church into this feast to flourish so that we can begin to, to be saturated with the scriptures to think biblically about these things, because it's not just this one issue of abortion. There's all kinds of other issues going around right now in our society, and it seems like the culture is winning. It seems like they've got a grasp on the social imaginary of our culture uh, to push things like the LGBTQ QIA stuff. So the 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 gay rights stuff has already been pushed. Now it's the transgender stuff. Now then then it'll be polygamy. Next it'll be um, the uh, they're they're relabeling um, pedophilia to call. Uh, uh, what is it? Minor attracted person. So again, changing the language to make it sound softer, sugarcoating that when it's really this this wicked thing. Um, critical race theory. So all of these things require us uh, to be able to stand in, to read uh, the scriptures, to understand the scriptures, to be able to think, think through uh, what the Word of God says and how it speaks to this cultural moment. It's really important. So again, I want to invite you into this. Um, grab that book by uh, George Grant, Killer Angel. Pick it up, learn a bit more about it, and, and continue diving into the Bible so that we can think together uh, with, with a Christian worldview and hope to, to see the Lord through us work to renew the city. Uh, I love you guys. I hope to see you. If you got any questions, I know this is a um, concert. Uh, a a um, what's the word? It is a controversial topic, and and there's I'm sure there's stuff that I I, I missed in this, and I could have provided more nuance. And of course, if I was sitting down across the table with somebody who was thinking about a, a divorce or a divorce, um, uh, a um, an abortion, I, I would definitely have a different kind of tone. This is more informative and instructional in nature, more than it is uh, counseling or pastoral counseling. Um, but if you have any questions, you want any more follow-up, shoot me an email, sam at sacredstatechurch.com. I'd love to hear feedback um, and, and continue to tackle this important issue together. Love you guys. I'll see you Sunday as we gather to worship Jesus together. <laughs>